You're listening to Skeptics in Mormonville. I'm your host, Shane. We have a special treat for you today. We have Anne Marie as a special guest host. So, Anne, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I'm a graduate student in physics at the University of Utah. I work in what's called condensed matter physics. So, that's physics that studies properties of materials, basically. You could think of it as properties of solid. A branch of that is called solid state physics. So, what we look for in our lab, which is a basic research type of endeavor. So, we're looking for quantum properties and superconductivity phase transitions of low Z elements, so very light elements. And the way that we look for these properties of these elements is applying very high pressure to them. So how did you get into the skeptical movement? I think part of me has always been a little bit skeptical. I've always liked to hear evidence for things that I've heard claimed, but really threw me over the edge as far as getting involved in a skeptical movement was a combination of hearing about homeopathy and how it really works and the scientific claims about it and then being so clearly, clearly wrong. And also just kind of noticing that some other grad students sort of believe some weird things. And that makes me realize the value to critical thinking. Now that's got me curious. So what kind of weird things are grad students believing in? Let's put this in a bit of perspective. When I was talking to my brother over Christmas, I mentioned, you know, how many grad students I've known that didn't, not that they totally reject evolution, but they'd say like, oh, I just don't believe that we were evolved from monkeys. Which is silly because no one ever said that. Of course. And then my brother commented that you notice that whenever there's a scientist that supports a really, you know, crazy claim, you know, like UFO sighting or denying global warming or or, or something really far out there, he said it's always a physicist. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my brother's a a biologist, by the way. (laughs) And, And he said that's because... Physicists don't have to learn other sciences. They only have to learn math, <laughs> which is actually a pretty good point. That's true. I think a, I think a very common misconception is if you're a science, you're automatically smart. And, yeah. And, um, and, and that's where this argument of authority comes from, where you have all these you know, celebrity doctors uh, jumping, jumping into things that they don't know anything about, like, like quantum physics or something along those lines. And, and yeah, it's... Uh, it, it, it's it's a very common misconception and actually dangerous in my eyes. Yeah, I agree. Like, and if anybody wants to look it up on YouTube, it's fantastic. It's Anderson Cooper 
when he has uh, Sylvia Brown and James Randi on. And there's this part. Oh, it wasn't Sylvia Brown. It was like her uh, press correspondent or somebody because she refused to appear with James Randi because he's an atheist. Somehow that would taint her. I don't know. So Actually, the, uh, the background story of that is he challenged her to want his test and she refused. And ever since, he's been bugging her to test. And uh, that's 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 why she wanted to appear. <laughs> yeah, and it's it, it's a it's a great video. But at one point, the the whoever it is who works for Sylvia Brown says, "Well, who is James Randi to test Sylvia Brown? He's a magician." And I remember thinking, "Well, he's the perfect person to test him. Scientists don't know these tricks, but magicians do." A scientist isn't going to know how a mentalist does tricks. Like that's just that's not something that anybody's going to study in school. But I think the assumption is, yeah, well, if you're a scientist, you must know everything, and that's clearly not the case. All right. Um, so I was going to ask, what's your favorite woo to hate? But you already said it was homeopathy, right? Oh yes. Why does homeopathy grind your gears? I'll start with kind of a funny story of some undergrads that are in our lab and they're trying to do what's called Raman spectroscopy and Raman is basically the idea is you excite some molecules with a laser and um, the laser light is scattered by the the molecules inside whatever substance you're trying to study and about one in every ten to the nine times light is scattered in a special way which is called Raman scattering so instead of molecule being excited to the same energy of the laser and then are excited to some state and then releasing the same energy as the laser, it, it goes to a what you can call an intermediate state. So this is a really popular method to study solids and the properties of solids. And most importantly, in our field of high pressure, this is used to study when something goes from one structural phase transition. So you have the same sort of substance, like, say, water, for instance, because we're talking about homeopathy, you put it under pressure, and even at room temperature, the water is going to become a solid. So it goes from liquid to ice. And then if you pressurize it more, it goes to a second ice phase, which is uncreatively just called ice two, as far as I know. And there's tons of different ice phases. But a popular means to study this is Raman scattering. So some undergrads in our lab were studying a sample with this method, and they showed me their data. And they asked if this data good. And I said, well, I don't see anything here. I mean, usually with Raman, you see a peak at a certain wavelength or wave number, and that peak will shift in relation to whatever laser line you're using. So usually you, you take a whole bunch of data points and stack them on top of each other, and you can see that the peak shift to the left or to the right. And for theirs, I didn't see any shift. And I said, what changed in this data? And they said, well, the background got bigger. And I said, well, that's not proof of anything. You can't write a paper and say that you saw something change when all you saw was your background getting bigger. You need more evidence than that. It could be evidence of something, but if that's your only evidence, I would say you're, you just messed up on your alignment. And then they went back and they, they worked on it. And then, you know, I had kind of a break in time and I looked up this paper by Rustam Roy and, uh, so Rustam Roy is, uh, late professor from Penn State and Bell, 
believe might be from Penn State. I'm not sure. Hoover, who I know is from Penn State. And I see that they have done Robin spectroscopy on homeopathy. So I download the paper and I look at it and I see their data. And all it shows is the same stupid Raman peak and a bigger background, which I <laughs> just an hour ago reamed some poor undergrad who only understands half of what I'm saying about how that's not proof of anything and somebody else had published a paper on it. And the, and the paper was about homeopathy, yeah. right? It was yeah, about, it was about... So what they did was they did Raman on different concentrations. Oh, so first, so they did Raman on several different samples, and they they said that they saw a different Raman signal. And they said, well, not only did we see a different Raman peak, but we saw a difference between the different concentrations of our homeopathic remedy. And so they show this data where it's like all these neat graphs stacked up against each other, and it's the same peak with just a bigger and bigger background which makes me think it was either they made a mistake and thought they saw something, or some undergrad or graduate student was trying to impress their PI and kind of watch the data. What I'd like to know is what what exactly were they trying to prove? That there was something in the water? Or, I mean, how does that prove the effect of homeopathy is my question. We're not trying to prove an effect of homeopathy. And and it's really funny because they they say in in the introduction to to try to pretend like this isn't a pro homeopathy paper even though well okay so the paper seems to have been published under a couple different titles and a couple different journals which seems like not so honest to me maybe it is I don't know personally it wouldn't be something that I would lend my name to but I don't know if it quite accounts to, like, academic dishonesty. Probably not. But one of the places where this article is published is the Journal of Homeopathy. <laughs> it says very clearly in the introduction, like, we're not talking anything about the effectiveness of homeopathic cures. We're not saying anything about how well they work. We're just saying that it's plausible. Like, they somehow stumbled across this idea, and it just so happens to show that homeopathy is plausible. And, and the bad part about a lot of these, well, for lack of a better word, quacks, that, that they're really good at walking that fine line of, you know, is this ethical or yeah. not? So I, I notice that a lot with a lot of Well, yeah, I noticed that in this paper, and I think it's kind of a fascinating read, but one of the things that's funny is that when they um, mention their methods... For using like um, Raman and these IR spectroscopy too, but I'm not as familiar with IR uh, spectroscopy myself, so I can't really comment on that. Was that they say, well, the same method was used in reference blah, and so I looked at reference blah, I forget what number it was, and it was the same paper, <laughs> which was, I, I mean, there might have been some superficial differences in it, but. It, it was more, I mean, the abstract was almost word for word the same. So they pretty much like Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, I don't know if this is technically deemed as um, academically dishonest. I, I don't know. It just seems like a way of boosting your own H index. But If you ask me, it's relying on people's laziness not to actually look up the references. Yeah, and, and who would? Um, I have a habit of looking up, I look up every reference when um, methods are cited, because I have a real pet beef about this, and this is not only for homeopathic 
uh, articles at all. This is for real scientific articles. I have a really big pet peeve about people not citing the methods, and this happens a lot, and it's really, really annoying. For those for those people who don't know what homeopathy is, it runs on three premises. Now, the first premise is that like cures like, which means if you if you have a rash, then you use poison ivy to cure that rash, since poison ivy can cure, uh, cause rashes, which makes sense to a point. But then it starts going crazy. The second premise is the, that the solution is to be diluted, and it's diluted to exponential rates. The higher it's diluted, the more it's po- or the the stronger the solution is supposed to be. To solve the obvious problem that you're going to dilute it to nothing, to basically water, third premise is that water has memory, which means water is supposed to remember that solution that that is put inside of it. The obvious question that everyone fails to ask is, why don't they just give you a full amount of the solution? I don't know. It's something that probably makes sense in the context of this was invented some 200 years ago, when if you had a medical problem and you went to a doctor and they tried to do surgery on you or put some leeches on you or bled you, you'd probably die just from the treatment alone. And at least homeopathy does nothing. So I can kind of get why it was popular at the time. It's a very strange premise because, oh, oh you also forgot the shaking part. You have to dilute it and then shake it. Oh, yes, dilute by And you see, this is where homeopathy gets into my field of speciality, which is pressure. Because homeopaths claim that by succussion, at least one paper, which I believe was also by Rustam Roy, I could be wrong, generally the scientific papers about homeopathy were by um, Rustam Roy, who was the, uh, let's see, he began the material science division at Penn State. So I'm sure he did some good science at some point in time. However, he was clearly a big fan of homeopathy. And so he claimed, or somebody claimed in this paper, that succussing it, which is shaking it, fancy word for shaking it, um, causes the water to hit the edge of the glass vial at hitting a pressure of about 12 gigapascals, which would be about 120,000 atmospheres. That could very well be true, but that pressure would only last for a fraction of a second. And that fraction of a second pressure is supposed to change the entire structure of liquid water somehow. That's never proven. Yeah, I can see why. <laughs> I guess if that was true, I mean, just just waves in the ocean exactly. would have Just every time that you get a bottle of water from the store, it's been in a truck, it's been lifted by somebody, it's been shaken quite a bit. So any sort of impurity in that water should be making some sort of homeopathic poison or remedy based on whatever it is that was in there. Um, Impurities of the glass vial itself, because by the time you dilute it 30 to 60 times, you basically have a very small chance of having a single molecule of your remedy left in your water solution, yet I'm sure there are some impurities in every glass vial that you're using. Well, I forget where I heard it from, but I hear that that you have more of a chance of having a molecule of George Washington's piss than you do actually having a molecule of that remedy. Yeah, I can see that. So, so, in, so in other words, uh, each one of those shaken water bottles is a homeopathic remedy of George Washington. Exactly, it has just as much chance yeah. of being that as it does of being, you know, that tiny little bit of poison ivy that's going to cure your ash, your your rash. 
And the one thing that uh, that kind of um, bothers me about not just people believing in it, well, not so much the people who believe in it, but the people who sell it. I'll put it that way. The people who are either selling you astrology or homeopathy or dowsing, therapeutic touch, whatever it is that they're selling, is that whenever you question it, they always say, I'm open-minded. And, like, and it seems like a lot of skeptics kind of accept that. Like uh, James Randi has a wonderful thing he says, I'm open-minded, but not to the point where my brain falls out, which is really funny, but I don't think that's very helpful because clearly the people who are selling this stuff are not open-minded because they haven't actually objectively thought about it. The the argument in which the skeptic is less open-minded than the person advertising their woo, it, it confounds me, really, um, because what they're doing is they're holding on to these pre- preconceived notions and any other idea or argument to the contrary, they're completely shutting out. And they call that open-minded. <laughs> it makes no sense to me whatsoever, and I, it, I find it very frustrating. Yeah, yeah, that just started to begin to annoy me quite a bit. I, yeah, and it's it's a very common argument, too. Excuse me, uh, skeptics out there. You should just, when somebody says, I'm just open-minded, you shouldn't let that go. I, I don't think it serves the skeptic skeptic community well to accept that people who believe in ghosts are open-minded and you're closed-minded because that's clearly against what the definition of being open-minded is unless Webster has changed the definition since I last looked it up. So yes, uh, as Skeptics and Mormonville's new segment, we have Wax on Netflix. We will be reviewing a movie or a episode or a show, something along those lines, on Netflix and just coming out with, you know, where they're wrong or how crazy these people can actually be. So this month, uh, we chose uh, Sensing Murder, which is a show on Netflix. We watched the first season, which involves the murder of Susanna Chase, who died on December 21st, 1997. On this one, we had two psychics, or psychic detectives. I, I shudder at the name of psychic detectives. But one claimed that they were a clairvoyant who who sees crimes as visibly, vividly as a postcard is is the quote from the from the show and the other is a medium who receives detailed messages is there a, from the a other side. difference between a medium um, and a clairvoyant? I believe a clairvoyant is someone who threw other oh, people Oh, okay. Out. And then a medium is someone who dead people then, talk to? Yes. That would make Pretty sense <laughs> from the just from what the word means. That medium would be someone who's in between a dead person and a a live person. So it looks like Sensing Murder came from, at least according to Wikipedia, came from a New Zealand show from 2006. Um, yeah, it was, I remember Pam Coronado. Yeah, I was having a hard time figuring out exactly what they claimed because it was, um, it was very strange, uh, what they're claiming to do because it, it seemed to change from scene to scene. You yeah. notice that too? It totally changed from scene to scene. And uh, here it is. It's from it's from 2006. Okay, so it is 2006. Same time as the New Zealand yes. version. All right. And yes, you're right. It changed from time from scene to scene. In the very beginning, I can see murders just as vivid as a postcard. To oh, I'm receiving these detailed messages. Blah 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 blah. And then what they did was they did what was the word where they just throw out a bunch of theories, yeah. most of which didn't even didn't even conf- or conflicted with each other. Yeah, I found it surprising how so 
I noticed how much of what the two psychics said conflicted with each other, and I immediately thought, the show is called Sensing Murder, so they're picking out the good stuff, right? In the hours that they're filming, these two women talking about this case, they're picking out the facts that they spout out that are the most consistent with the real case. But that wasn't very accurate, so I wonder what the other stuff looked like. Oh, yeah. Right, that through those hours, and they only fit it into a 30-minute episode, they probably threw out a bunch of stuff. Just like if you go to a live reading for a for John Edwards or something like that, there's so many misses that just don't even make it on TV. And, yeah, I mean, you can only assume that there was a lot of that here, too. Yeah, but, so I vaguely remember this case. I was maybe around 13 at the time that this happened. And this happened in Colorado, and being in Utah, you know, it's it's not that far away, and it was in Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado is a college town. Aren't that many murders. I mean, it was kind of like John Bonet and this one are kind of the big profile ones. But I, I vaguely remember this of a college student being killed. And I, that's the first thing that struck me was, like, I, I vaguely remember this case. This must have been all over the news. And they're interviewing these psychics years years later so they they have them you know they show the two psychics sitting down in these very um closed off rooms it looked like uh maybe it wasn't but to me it looked like a police interview room or at least close to what police interview rooms on law and order look like and they start to say things about the case and then the the voiceover goes they have not been told any details about the case like this is a years old murder case of a cute blonde girl that was murdered in Boulder, Colorado. Of course they've heard details about the case. All you have to do is use Google. I don't know, though. I, I kind of disagree because kind of a lot of the stuff they threw out, they weren't accurate but they at all. But she was <laughs> I mean, blonde. Or they both knew that she was blonde. I guess. And that it was violent. But I, I suppose you could actually kind of figure that one out on its own, right? Well, I don't know how many people are blonde in Colorado, but of course they're violently murdered. You're going to be on a TV show called Sensing Murder. That would be a safe bet. If you see murders, like, as vividly as, I guess, the victim sees them, shouldn't you get all the details right? Yes. I mean, it, basically, from what they claim 